Hi, this is Heidi. Welcome back to The Hot Dish. This is the time of year when we think about all the incredible people across this country who serve in nonprofits, who do incredible work in making our country and really our world a better place. So in this episode, each one of the board members talks about their favorite charity and what makes that charity so special in their lives. So Melanie, I know that um, your entire life pretty much has been dedicated to the kids of North Dakota and you've done such a tremendous job in raising awareness, especially on issues like trafficking in North Dakota, but you also serve on the National Runaway and Homeless Youth Board. And I think one of the more interesting things you've told me or taught me um, over the last couple of years is how prevalent runaway and homeless youth are in rural America. And so could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, honestly, there is a study that was just recently done called Voices of Youth Count um, through Chapin Hall in Chicago, and they really didn't have good numbers identifying the prevalence of homeless youth in runaway youth in um, rural areas. And um, that study is really quite fascinating because what they found is it's every bit as prevalent if not more in rural areas, it's just that you don't you don't see the youth um, because they do what we refer to as couch surfing, meaning they just hop from one person to the next home or find a place to crash, and so they're not as prevalent out on the street where you can see, um, you know, street youth living homeless or on the run. They're moving from one person's house to the next. And as you can imagine, um, that exposes them to, you know, more vulnerability and exploitation. Absolutely, especially if someone feels like they can take advantage of someone with the argument, hey, listen, I'm putting a roof over your head, so you're going to have to engage in whatever behavior you want to engage in. And and we know that for many runaway and homeless youth, that's the entrance um, to um, being trafficked. Uh, Mm -hmm. First, you see this idea of, of um, you know, kind of what what you might call, um, you know, protection sex or, or people exploiting kids and then eventually exploiting them for sale. And, you know, it's amazing because people ask me all the time about what's going on in North Dakota with trafficking. And I always want to remind people that, um, you know, this is this is something that we have uh, in a state as small as North Dakota. Can you talk a little bit about your trafficking program? So our tra- trafficking program, and before I really go into kind of what we're doing, I want to draw attention, especially as we're talking about rural areas. So in rural America, we have a lot of kids couch surfing and probably um, engaging in survivor sex, which is, you know, um, I, as long as you're putting a roof over my head, I will basically engage in sexual activity with you. And we know that for a lot of youth um, across the country and even in North Dakota, that's the beginning of that trafficking pattern. And you over the last um, several years have run the youth trafficking program. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of transitions and what you've seen in terms of treads in trafficking in a small state like North Dakota? 
So more and more as we, you know, this program is fairly new. And in terms of getting everybody up and trained and understanding what to look for, it, it's become very clear to many of us in the youth service field how much has been missed um, and, and how much it's always been there. And we just weren't asking perhaps the right questions or understanding the full extent of the complexity of the problem. Um, and what we are finding now is that as we're learning how to um, build relationships and engage um, youth in, um, without judgment, just kind of talking about what it's taken them to survive or what it's taken them to be able to make it on the street, we are discovering much more that um, youth are um, being exploited and um, exchanging um, sex for a safe place to to sleep for the night. Yeah. Yeah. So, so safe would be, uh, you know, maybe yeah, exactly. maybe warm and yes. yeah, maybe warm and and not wet, but certainly not safe. And exactly. so, uh, how do you how how do you kind of rate the challenges of providing treatment and recovery for vi uh, youth victims of of human trafficking? Well, some of our greatest challenges right now is systemic. It it really has to do with um, that the system, the child um, welfare system, the child protection system is just trying to get up to speed with, um, you know, it, it hasn't been that long since runaway youth were um, considered not criminals or not placed in secure lockup detention because they were running away. So we're, we are not all that far away from that if you if you really consider that. And so now as we move into kind of other ways they've been exploited, um, there's still some of the systemic challenges that say, how do we make certain that we're not harming them in the process by, um, a, you know, when they are picked up and um, brought in, that they're not being placed in a, um, a place that they perceive to be um, punishment or negative towards them in terms of, because some, a lot of our youth are really escaping very bad situations and home lives. And in some of the cases, in, in a fair percentage of the cases that we've had, they've been trafficked right out of their home. Yeah, and so I, they're I think escaping that. that. Yeah, I always always say, Mel, that this idea that it's Laura Ingalls Wilder who has this perfect home life with Ma, Pa bounding through the prairie and someone scoops her up, that's not right. typical. I'm not saying it could never happen, but it certainly is not typical. These are usually pretty vulnerable kids to begin with who already have this sense, maybe, maybe already were victims very young of sexual assault and have this sense of... Um, kind of looking for love and looking for purpose and, and really get in this life, not, not by any kind of um, conscious decision, but by necessity or by just, you know, trusting someone too much. And, and then that trust when it's broken, you know, again, I, that's got to be an incredibly difficult cycle to break given what happens with um, the consequences of childhood trauma. Exactly. You know, and I, I think that for these youth, they don't, you know, the language of trafficking is so foreign to them that they don't see themselves um, as fitting um, a word that's called trafficking. They just, it's like, this is what my life is like, and this is what it's been like. And 
and a lot of them um, blame themselves for, and there, there's a lot of shame involved. So, you know, it's it takes time to build those relationships. And, you know, one of the so, struggles we, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, so Mel, you, you've been doing this a long time. How much trafficking do you think you've missed over the years just dealing with runaway and homeless youth um, I think, and, and the things that they've been through? I think to answer that, I think I'm going to have a better idea in about four or five years, quite honestly, because just what I've seen, we really started our trafficking work about four years ago. And four years ago, it just started out as we need to be trained and we need to train professionals. And now um, we don't have enough shelter to shelter even the youth that are coming in. And so give give folks, I mean, this is a national podcast. And I'm sure people are curious about Wow in North Dakota. How many how many um, victims of trafficking do you currently have on your caseload now? Well, we have two offices, so we have an office, but we're running a statewide trafficking program. So right now, I would say that we probably have about 30 um, wow. confirmed um, survivors that we're working with right now. That's incredible. Some of them are older and they than 18. Because we and, work and a lot of them health. come from, right? A lot of them come from other places as well. And maybe, you know, we tell the story in, about the woman who saw a sign: if someone's hurting you, um, you know, call this number. And she's basically working the circuit around out of, I think, out of Milwaukee originally, and then, you know, going to all the major cities in North Dakota. And this certainly during the height of the oil boom. Um, and she memorizes the numbers so that when she was headed to Fargo, she called that number and asked people to pick her up. I mean, right. so how important it is to do that outreach and to, you know, know, to tell young women um, and boys that, you know, there is a real, uh, uh, there's help and help can be available. But if your program doesn't run, there isn't help, Right. That's really, and and it really takes, that's really true, and it really takes someone who understands how you um, safely provide shelter um, because, you know, the programs are going to be as good as um, being able to pr- have what they've been out there looking for in terms of I just need a place to sleep and I can't go back to what I've been been at and how the entire system responds to that and and doesn't take for so many of our adolescents if you think about it the business of being a young adult or a teenager is to try to launch and be independent and then what happens is they see a system that you know people will say is out there to help them and it is but they feel like I won't have any freedom or any rights I um, and so you know, they're more reluctant to come into us, whether it's the foster care system well, or it, corrections. Right. And, and, many of, and many of these kids are, in fact, um, have been victimized by the system, if, especially the Correct. foster care system. And so okay. they aren't going to, if they think that, that working with you means that they're going to go back into foster care placement where that was not a positive experience in their life, um, they've got to always judge, you know, what, what's the, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Yeah, and you know the interesting thing in a rural area like this is that we um, knew that we couldn't. This is a fairly large geographical state, and so it's like, how are we going to make certain that we have 
safe places that are within reach um, for when we need to shelter. And so we de- developed the host home model, meaning we, we are a licensed child placing agency. So we have homes throughout the state that are ready to, and are specially trained to take in um, not just trafficked youth, but even young adults. I mean, because there's nothing prohibiting um, a home from taking in a 19-year-old, a for instance. And uh, surprisingly, yeah. we've had good good success with that. You know, the, the the point that I wanted to make is, you know, you get a fair amount of support from the state of North Dakota for your mm-hmm. trafficking program, not a lot from your runaway and homeless youth program. Um, but, you know, those are two sides of the same coin. We have at-risk youth who are, um, you know, especially in a state like North Dakota with the climate, are at risk of freezing to death. And we see that um, not infrequently on the reservations. Um, and, and so I think we all have to kind of think about how we need to get rid of our judgment and how we need to start thinking about how we love all of our kids. And the thing I love about your program is that it is a safe place without judgment where kids can, in fact, come, you know, and and I'm going to close with a story. I was just at a local restaurant having breakfast with my husband and a young woman waited on me. And she said, your sister is the best. Youth works is the best. It saved my life. And she just, um, she's an amazing, uh, you know, just, you could tell that spirit. She's, you know, whatever you guys did, you gave her back a lot of optimism. And that's, you know, when you can make people optimistic about their life and you can help them put some challenges in their life behind them, I can't imagine anything more important, especially when it's a young, when it's a young person, you know, to give that opportunity. And if we just invested more in programs like yours and invested more in early childhood education and in childhood trauma, we could save us, uh, save people a lot of hurt down the line, but also save a lot of taxpayer dollars. And so, Mel, I want to I, I want to thank you so much for joining me, letting me brag a little bit about your program, but also talk about how um, the issue of of uh, runaway and homeless youth, the issue of at-risk adolescents, um, the risk uh, the risk that they experience even within the system, that this isn't a problem that is a Chicago problem or a New York problem. This is a problem all across the country and. We're challenged even more by the lack of uh, addiction and, and mental health services. But if if you weren't there to to offer that opportunity to take that first step towards recovery of their life, I mean, I don't know what these kids would do. They'd still be out in the streets. So, now you have a great holiday season, and just know the work that you've dedicated your life to has been so important to so many kids and so many families. Well, thanks, and thanks for the opportunity to just kind of get the message out there. We we love the opportunity to get the message out there. You never know who you're going to reach. or I mean, people do call in good citizens and just say, I'm concerned and I'm going to bring this, this youth to you. So just this opportunity is, is really important. I hope everybody listening to The Hot Dish will, will um, take a chance to, to look around, especially if you have adolescent children, you know, there's there's a high chance that some of their um, friends are, in fact, couch surfing or they're engaged in at-risk behaviors and, you know, understand what services are available so that you can help provide that safety net. 
um, it's no more important time to think about other people than um, during the Christmas and holiday season. And Mel, thank you so much um, for the work that you do. I am so extraordinarily proud of everything that you do and everything. Your, your entire staff, you guys do a great job. Thanks, Heidi. everyone, this is State Representative Ashton Clemens um, on the board of Boyne Country and I'm excited to get the opportunity to talk about my friend Jean Blackman who started and runs Prestige Barber College in Greensboro. And when asked for a nonprofit that I wanted to highlight, it did what Jean was the first person I thought of because I think all of our lives should be about how do we use whatever we've been given to help people improve the li their lives in whatever way we can. And Gene's a perfect example of that because he has used his own story to uh, help people who have certainly made mistakes but want to be able, he uses all he can to help people who are ready to try and improve their own lives, have a way to do that on their own. And Gene does that by starting, he started, he himself is a barber and being a barber helped Gene uh, improve his own life. And then he started Barber Prestige Barber College for folks who a lot of them are coming out of the criminal justice system and needed a way to provide for their families. And he knew that being a barber and an entrepreneur was a way to do that, which kind of circumvented all of the barriers we put up to people who are trying to reenter the workforce after uh, serving their time. And so Gene started a barber college where he helps people get their license to become uh, licensed barbers. But more than that, he uses that barber college to improve our community in so many different ways. Gene uh, works in our local schools as a role model to students. He works at our uh, the Interactive Resource Center, which is a day center for people experiencing homelessness, and he goes there and interacts with them. And early uh, this session, I spent a Saturday morning in Gene's barber shop. From his barber chair and through his barber college, Gene builds relationships with people in the community who trust Gene when they may not trust anyone else. And so conversation by conversation, Gene helps everyone around him live a better life. And I'm so happy to get to highlight him. Uh, like she said, my name is Gene Blackman. And um, I had gotten into a little trouble when I was about 16 years old. And um, because of all the missing school from court dates and things of that nature, um, I had dropped out of school. Um, got my GED, and I went straight to barber school. And one of the main reasons was because at 17, I was trying to apply for a job at various um, businesses, and no one would hire me because of that criminal background. And um, so I dropped out of school, went to barber school, and it was no looking back from there. The barber industry actually saved my life. And because of that, I wanted uh, to provide an opportunity for others in my community to, to become an entrepreneur through the industry of barbering and to change their lives and get on the right track through the industry of barbering. So that's what we've been able to do, <clears throat> excuse me, for the past eight years. We opened in 2011, December, 
And so we are celebrating eight years of hard work and changing lives. Thanks so much to listening to Jean's story, and I hope it can serve as an example that all of us can use our lives to improve the community. He's certainly that to me. One Country Board wishes everyone a happy holidays, and we are all ready for 2020 when we can keep trying to move our state and country forward. Thanks. We have here with us uh, Dick Fountain, a board member for the Boys and Girls Club, Boys and Girls Club North Alabama, and an advocate in the community, someone that's been involved in the community for some time. And so, Dick, um, you know, if you will just talk about um, the Boys and Girls Club and what you do as a board member and how impactful the Boys and Girls Club is in North Alabama. Okay, we've been, uh, this organization's over 80 years old here in Huntsville and has expanded into uh, Limestone, Jackson, and Morgan County, uh, as well as being here in Madison County. And uh, we serve about 1,200 kids a day uh, on average, have an after-school program um, that, uh, and summer program as well, focus on total youth development strategy for our uh, our members, and uh, you know, Anthony's been just really supportive of uh, the club and the kids. And uh, is he used the word advocate describing me? I mean, that's one of his the key roles he plays as being an advocate for and a, a role model advocate for our youth. And uh, has you know been able to help us with some resource development, with some uh, funding from the state for through the education department and. Uh, some uh, in, in in some other areas, but uh, also we've we've been able to leverage off his support to uh, gain some private resources here in the community as well. So the Boys and Girls Club, uh, Boys and Girls Club for me uh, is was an, is an easy choice because I see the impact that uh, the Boys and Girls Club is making on the community, especially those that are less fortunate that are in low income areas. It provides them with a safe haven, also gives them an opportunity to be able to dream bigger and be able to interact with other um, alums of the Boys and Girls Club, those that have gone through the program before and, and that have been that are successful uh, today. And so it gives them an opportunity to really dream big and, and really follow in the footsteps of those that have come before them. And listening to the testimonials of the individuals that have uh, gone through the Boys and Girls Club, you know, it, it kind of makes you stop and think and you know am i doing enough uh, because this organization has meant so much to the folks that have been through the, that have gone through the program and they actually um you know attribute the their success um from you know of being going through the boys and girls club and so for me i see the work and the impact uh, that they're having in this local community you know giving kids an opportunity um, after, whether it's after school program or summer programming uh, keep it, keeping them out of you know out of harm's way uh, because we know that you know when when our our young people are out of school and they don't have anything to do sometimes they get in get in a little trouble but I will say the Boys and Girls Club uh, has you know even the programming that they offer is very impactful whether it's helping uh, a young person with their homework or workforce development they've added a component to the Boys and Girls Club that speaks to workforce development for I think 16 year olds. And, and, and really connecting them with the workforce. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that the Boys and Girls Club offer that, 
you know, I think that's that's really filling the void in the community. And so for me, uh, the Boys and Girls Club is uh, one of my favorite charities, and, and I'm, you know, on board 100%, and I advocate and, and talk about them everywhere I go and encouraging other communities around the state that may not have it, especially in our rural areas, uh, you know, speaking to, to – to encouraging them to get a satellite campus of Boys and Girls Club, and, and that's something that we're working on in some other areas of the state, uh, um, particularly in my hometown, which is very rural. And so, but thanks to folks like Dick, uh, I've been able to connect with people throughout the state uh, to to continue to spread the good news of the Boys and Girls Club and in its effectiveness. So it's hard to uh, even describe the relationship that our staff members have with the with the kids, with the youth that come in the clubs, but I mean they're just um, surrogate parents in a lot of cases to the kids and their relationships that last many, many years. We have staff members that have been with us for you know over 20 years, so they've seen a lot of youth grow up and uh, uh, maintain the relationship all the way into young adulthood. And the programs speak for themselves. We focus on. Uh, three core areas, which are academic achievement, partner with the schools and uh, are in the schools and have teachers in the Boys and Girls Club. Um, we have a, have a great relationship with the education community. Then we have character and leadership, which we have a great Youth of the Month, Youth of the Year program, uh, work with the kids on speaking and etiquette and just all the things they need to be successful in life. And then we have the healthy lifestyles component where we feed, you know, the kids get a meal when they get to the club in the afternoons. We focus on healthy snacks, nutrition, education about that, uh, as well as fitness and, you know, wellness type activities. So it's a very holistic youth development program that we run. But once again, the, the relationships that the kids develop with each other and with our staff members and volunteers and community support uh, it's just really a, a great program to help families uh, providing the you know the after school care and summer program so the parents can work and like Anthony said I mean it, it's you know we focus on inner city youth and areas of uh, rural poverty that face all the, the challenges out there that go with that but Boys and Girls Clubs it's a great program for you know, all children and youth have the opportunity to participate in. Hello, everyone, and happy holidays. I'm J.D. Scholten, a candidate here in Iowa's 4th District, uh, Congressional District, and a One Country member. And I'm here today with, with Angela. Uh, she's the Executive Director of the Voluntary Action Center and who runs uh, the Meals on Wheels program. Uh, Angela, uh, can you give us a, a brief background of your organization and the important work that you're doing here in Iowa? Sure. Um, the Voluntary Action Center of the Iowa Great Lakes here in Northwest Iowa was created over 40 years ago to match volunteers with people in need throughout our area. Um, our main program, as you said, is providing Meals on Wheels to our homebound seniors. What we've found is that rural older adults living in the United States face unique and persistent challenges such as transportation, fragmented delivery and financing of care, and social isolation, which affect their ability to receive necessary supportive services and caregiving. Um, older adults in rural areas report higher rates of falls, obesity, smoking, and physical inactivity, 
while engaging in lower rates of preventative care um, like health screenings and flu vaccines. So Meals on Wheels provides not only a meal, but we provide a service that allows seniors to live independently in their own homes, making sure they don't feel isolated and terribly alone there. We provide the only contact that many of our recipients have with another person all day. These seniors are our neighbors, our former teachers, police officers, nurses, farmers, and store clerks. Um, in my county in Iowa, our population of people over the age of 65 is uh, 26%. Yep, one in four of, of the residents in my area is over the age of 65. So we serve about 6,500 meals each year to our homebound seniors. That's that's amazing, and and uh, one of the reasons uh, well, I'm so fortunate that we connected. One of the reasons I'm uh, particular uh, interested in Meals on Wheels is because is of my great grandmother, and and she was a recipient, and I just knew how much, uh, especially when you mentioned that the just the contact, the food is one thing, but the the personal contact is is such a big deal to a lot of these rural uh, older people, and and and. Uh, it's near and dear to my heart. So um, um, I am so grateful for, for what you guys do and, and for folks like yourself. Um, and I encourage everybody uh, to to uh, uh, get active somehow. And if you're interested in, in getting more active with Meals on Wheels, how would, how would they go about doing that? Well, I'm always looking for ways to get the word out that we're having a really a very real issue getting new volunteers. Um, like our nation's population, our volunteers are aging as well, and our churches <laughs> yeah. are stretched to the limit with charitable giving. So if you're listening and you do want to volunteer, I can be reached at 712-336-4444, or you can email me at vac, that's V-A-C, lakes, at gmail.com, or our website is lakes, volunteers.org. Wonderful. And, and uh, one of the things that uh, I, I don't think gets talked enough about is, is uh, it's service. And, and that's one thing our campaign is trying to do and not just, uh, I mean, we, we eventually will ask for people's votes, but I think it's about giving back to people as well. And so um, I would love to, to continue uh, on this conversation and would love to help the meals and wheels in my district or my area down here in Sioux city. Um, but, but uh, uh, I just want to say thank you again, Angela, for taking time to talk to us and, and thank you for all the work that you're doing. Yeah. So with that, I just want to wish everybody a happy holidays. I'm here with my dear friend, Steve Camilleri, the director of the South Bend center for the homeless. Steve, how are you? I'm doing well, Senator Donnelly, and everyone here at the center is doing well, and they send their best regards to you. Well, they are dear, dear friends of mine, and particularly today, I wanted to talk about the uh, center's homeless uh, center for, the, for our veterans, the Robert Miller uh, Homeless Vet Center, and all the work you do for our veterans. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about it? What, what exactly you do at the Homeless Vet Center for our veterans who, who have served our country so well? Absolutely, Senator, and, and I, I do want to start with thanking you, because you were there for us from the very beginning when we were trying to get the VA funding, you, you fought for us, you sent letters of support. We were able to open up 
in January of 2012. And since that day, almost eight years, we've served 444 male veterans um, who have been able to live at the center and 75% of them, three quarters of those guys have received permanent supportive housing, which is really what we're trying to do. We're trying to get these guys into housing and our Robert L. Miller Vet Center is a bridge during that time when they need to come here, when they're you know pretty broken, um, going through some tough times. They need the support, they need the case management, they need the programming, they need all that the VA has to offer. And then uh, we're able to get them back on their feet. And it, it's been just a great program. And again, thanks for being there since day one for us. Well, it's been such a privilege. And like, like you said, um, what this does is gets our, get our vets um, back on their feet. These are people who served our country, who put their lives on the line. And, um, you know, the folks you have there, um, they work every day to try to put things back in place for our vets, don't they? The uh, they they sure do. And, and I, I know you and I both share the sentiment, as so many do, that no one should ever experience homelessness. It's just unjust. But particularly our veterans who've, who've gone to battle, have fought for our freedoms. When we see them, it, it's just something that should never occur. And that's why we have a veterans amnesty program here. And we have had functionally zero homeless veterans in the South Bend community for the past five years. And it's just been through the effort of so many that have made that possible, that, that we get those folks back into great housing, safe housing, affordable housing. Boy, that's a, that's a goal across the country is to make it so that at nightfall, every veteran has a place to put their head down on a pillow um, be safe and know that there's a hot meal around the corner for them as well. And that's what you do yeah. all of those things. And then also prepare them for life in the days ahead. Don't you? Yeah, we're certainly doing. I think of one of our great programs called drive developing readiness in veterans experiences. It's a program for our veterans. Uh, we're proud to be supported by Brady Quinn, who went to school at Notre Dame. He has his third and gold foundation. So folks like Brady, members of the community who do programs like Bears in the Air, Get Wet for a Vet, all of these great programs to support our veterans so they don't ever have to spend a night out on the street. And we have our great Miller's Vets Color Guard, as you know, which gets our vets really feeling proud to be at services in the community, whether it's parades, funerals, starting of sporting events to present those colors, dress in their uniform, and they're so proud to do it. And we're, we're thrilled that that's been in its eighth year as well. Well, we want to give a shout out to Robert Miller, a legendary veteran, a legendary uh, member of our community who, who in many ways through sheer will was able to get all of this done. He sure was. He's a World War II hero. And as you know, Joe, he would have been 99 years old on December 5th but for his passing this May. And uh, we're so grateful. We're so grateful to, to Robert L. Miller and to his family and to you and your family, Joe, for all the support. Well, thanks. And, and we both know that uh, uh, Robert Miller would be inspecting the, uh, the color guards <laughs> uniforms to make sure everything was correct before they headed out the door. Thank you so Without much, Steve. Um, every day you make people's lives better. And we want to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and a, and a wonderful holiday. And thank you for doing God's work for our veterans and for our community. 
Thank you. Thanks for the support. Merry Christmas to you, and Merry Christmas to all of our veterans.